Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Good day to all. Thank you for joining me. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and once again, welcome to What Christians Should Know, the podcast. This is Volume Zero, where we will be searching for crucial answers to critical questions about belief. In this episode number four, we'll be searching for a meaningful answer to the critical question, why suffering? This episode will be in three parts, so let's get started. I will begin by reading three scripture verses. All will be taken from the King James Version. First is Romans 5 verses 3 to 5. So Romans says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. 1 Peter 5.10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye has suffered for a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. James 1, 2-4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Why suffering is an ultimate question that begs for ultimate truth in the form of an ultimate answer. Why? Because we live in a world filled with suffering, and our conscience tells us that suffering is not the norm, but rather a deviation away from it. We become infected with a virus, feel ill, desire to be healthy again and then recover. We fall down and break our leg and long to return to normal when our pain is gone and we no longer walk with a limp. We look out to the world around us and ask questions like, why do those innocent children have to die? And why did that building have to burn down? Asking why presupposes a reason and a purpose behind circumstances. We search for an answer, and our search often comes up empty, yet we still have a sense that an answer exists somewhere. We are forced to deal with the striking paradox that while we, human beings, stand above and have dominion over the rest of creation, we also have the heightened ability to reflect on our own misery. Because of our grandeur, we also suffer the greatest. The answer to why suffering would in fact be very easy if God did not claim to be good. We could then say that suffering is the result of a cruel and heartless deity. The answer to why suffering would also be very easy if God did not claim to be omnipotent. Then we could simply say there's nothing God could do about it because it was beyond his control. The answer to this episode's central question would also be very simple if evil was an illusion or if real people didn't have to endure so much felt grief. The Bible tells us that God is both good and all-powerful, so we must reconcile these revelations with the brutal facts about our reality. What I hope to convey in this episode is that while the Bible may not give each individual a specific answer to why they suffer in unique situations, it does abound in general principles that will equip us to deal with our perilous situations and grow our faith by directing us to the only legitimate source of eternal hope, 
Jesus Christ. If for nothing else, he is the one who perfectly demonstrated that suffering has meaning, it is not for nothing, and the path to new life by the power of the resurrection always goes directly through the pain, anguish, and torment of the cross. One of the unique truth claims of the Christian faith, and what separates it from other false religions and fad ideologies, is that it tells us the story of our real-life Savior who dealt with real-life suffering and who now forever stands as a shining tower of real-life hope. What the model of Jesus and God's revelation to us in the Bible demonstrate is that truly, we will never have a comprehensive answer to all of life's trials, but what we do have matters more. An empathetic God who will stand by our side in times of strife, never allowing us to experience more than we can handle. For in the end, what matters more for a weary mother mourning the loss of her child and the torn husband who must watch his wife endure grueling pain? A scientific or causal explanation for present circumstances or the felt presence of an almighty God who will extend his hand to comfort you and pick you up when your bones are crushed and your soul has dropped into the depths of the abyss. Throughout the three parts of this episode, I will begin by examining how evil and free will give us clarity when it comes to suffering. Next, I will take a look at common arguments skeptics use against God because of suffering and debunk said arguments. The bulk of the remaining lesson will focus on what I believe is the most important response to why suffering, and that is how to deal with it when we are afflicted. I will conclude episode 4 with an analysis of the book of Job and extract meaningful answers and actionable advice. Throughout this lesson, I will be touching upon suffering from many different angles, including some that are very analytical and therefore more distant from many personal experiences. In doing so, as a disclaimer, I in no way, shape, or form intend to belittle or minimize anyone's trials, tribulations, or felt needs during times of pain. The content in all three parts of this episode will attempt to challenge and reconstruct what you believe so that you will be well-equipped, mature in sound doctrine, and grow in your faith. So first, a definition. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines suffering as a state of undergoing distress, pain, or hardship. It defines suffer as experience or be subjected to something bad or unpleasant. The only problem I have with these definitions is that they tend to suggest that in order for suffering to be properly dealt with, it has to be removed. This subconsciously directs a person away from their suffering in order to find a substitution and escape or something to cover it up. As will be explained later, how we cope with suffering, biblically speaking, does not necessarily entail removal of the suffering. The Greek word for suffering means pressure, affliction, persecution, or trouble. The Hebrew word for suffering means evil, adversity, calamity, or distress. So how does evil relate to suffering? In many cases, evil is the direct cause of suffering. Evil is the agent that starts a reaction, and people experience the consequences of that reaction as suffering. So, for the remainder of our talk on evil, when you hear the word evil, keep in mind that this is the first step in a process that invariably produces suffering. Thousands of years ago, the ancient theologian Augustine helped us to clarify what evil is. In On the Morals of the Manichaeans, he says that evil is corruption and lacks any substance in and of itself. So, everything that God created is good, and God did not create evil. Still, evil is that which is a lack 
and pervert something that is good. Something that is not pure cannot be corrupted, and evil is what taints something that is pure, making it corrupt. Hence, evil is the lack of good and is, as Norman Geisler says, a parasite that cannot exist except as a whole in something that should be solid. Evil also extends to taint the relationships between things so that the relationship becomes deficient and therefore things don't operate as they should. For example, a relationship between a man and his wife may lack love, therefore opening the door for abuse. A relationship between a man and wine may lack self-control and therefore lead to drunkenness. There is nothing inherently evil about men, women, or wine, but it is the lack of good in these relationships that is evil. So where did evil come from? If God is sovereign and made everything, doesn't this mean that God had to create evil? May it never be. God is not evil and the fear of the Lord means hatred of evil. When God made our world and life, he declared his creations good at the end of each day of creation. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin because of one simple phenomenon, free will. God made free creatures, meaning that they had the unforced ability to decide between options. Yes, people have emotional desires, but it is a conscious act of the will that compels a person to choose one thing over another. Interestingly, it becomes clear from this definition of free will, or the unforced ability to choose, that a lack of freedom does not mean less alternatives. It simply means being forced to choose instead of being free to choose. So, the opposite of freedom is not a lack of options. It's being compelled. This is a point worth making because in modernity, many associate freedom with a number of options, which is a false idea. One could be compelled, for example, to quote-unquote choose one specific choice from a menu of thousands. So, because God did not want to create robots who were forced to love and obey him, he made free creatures who could freely choose him. This is the existential risk of love that those whom you love and give yourself to will not respond positively to that love. The unfortunate side effect is that these free creatures are also free to not choose God, and when they do so, evil results. That is, a lack of obedience and a lack of worship. This does not blame God for evil. Rather, he created the fact of freedom, and we perform the acts of freedom. He made evil possible, and we make evil actual. The Bible reveals again and again that God is a war and not a puppet master. So in Genesis 3, the serpent never put a gun to Eve's head and commanded her to choose. Instead, given the option of choosing God versus doing what the serpent suggested, she freely chose to disobey the Lord. Pay attention to what the text says about Eve in Genesis 3.6. The King James Version says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Eve weighed her options. She herself saw what she thought was the wiser path, took it, and Adam subsequently followed. When free creatures freely choose to not obey God, the result is evil, sin, and inevitably, suffering. 
What I hope I have now made clear is one response to this episode's central question. That is, free beings choose evil, evil causes suffering, and therefore, free beings are the cause of suffering. For example, when a murderer targets a victim, he freely chooses to take the life of another person by force. This uncoerced selection between alternatives, to kill or to not kill, chooses an option that is devoid of any good and distorts a relationship between two people. So when the murderer kills, suffering ensues. Hence, whenever we ask why suffering, we cannot dismiss the pervasive power of sin and people who freely choose to do what is wrong and directly cause misery. Indeed, God could have created a world without evil, sin, and suffering, but this would be a world without free will, a world full of robots or flowers and rocks. Consider also that the things we consider the most good in our life are traits that excel in the midst of their direct opposite. For example, if bravery means persisting in the midst of fear, then if fear did not exist, nor would bravery, because there would be nothing to overcome. Faith means trusting in and believing God, despite alternatives like wealth and power. If these alternatives did not exist, that would devalue legitimate biblical faith. The point I'm trying to make is that those things that are the most virtuous are so because of the existence of opposites. In reality, that was devoid of free will. Yes, there would be no evil and suffering, but neither would there be love and faith. As a former personal trainer of mine always says, extraordinary results require extraordinary effort. If you aren't working against resistance, then you simply won't get bigger, faster, or stronger. Faith can only flourish in the midst of evil idolatry, and without faith in Christ, suffering would be an obstacle that would swallow up believers. Astonishingly, if God were to swipe away all the evil from the face of the world, then this means he would have to swipe away the cause of evil, free will. If this is destroyed, then so is love, and in a world devoid of love, there would be no Jesus and no salvation. In order for love to exist, freedom must exist. After all, God, who is love, freely chose to create our world and sent Jesus because of love. Even when Jesus relayed to us what the two greatest commandments are, they were commandments that involve the love of God and the love of one's neighbor. This, of course, comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 37. The good news for us is that God is so loving that he freely chose a reality in which human beings would freely disobey him over a reality in which no person exists. On top of all of that, God safeguards us from evil by defining it for us, implanting a sense of right and wrong in our conscience, enabling us by the power of the Spirit to do what is good, and assuring us that through Christ, evil will actually be defeated in the future. The prescription for salvation requires a healthy dose of free will, and by implication, suffering, yet a recognized side effect of free will is evil. This simply means that God, as our treating physician, is fully aware and in complete control of our treatment plan. Evil and its resultant consequences are accepted side effects in the treatment aimed at redemption. What this means in contemplating the evil done to Jesus is quite clear. The cross without a greater good purpose is divine child abuse. The truth is that the cross is with a greater good purpose, for as it says in Mark 10.45, 
for the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. So our world is not free from suffering, nor is it ideal. Yet in his book, If God, Why Evil, Norman Geisler makes the case that our world may not be the most ideal, but it is the ideal path to get to the ideal. In this paradigm, the number of people who will be saved is maximized, and those who reject God will be without excuse when final judgment comes. C.S. Lewis famously wrote that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Lack of pain gives us no reason or compulsion to pay attention. In fact, contentment does a great job of encouraging complacency. Suffering alerts us that something needs to change, and if God allows us to suffer so that we turn to him, of what loss is it to you in the end if you temporarily lose in the present, yet you gain eternity? Visit the official home of What Christians Should Know, WCSK.org, and join the movement that attracts more than 10,000 visitors online daily. There you will find intelligent faith that provides clarity and meaningful answers to all of your questions. Get a wealth of resources and feel free to ask us any question that pertains to your walk with God. Once again, WCSK.org. Visit and tell all your friends about it. So back to our program. The next thing we'll talk about is that suffering is not evidence against God. When it comes to suffering in the world, many people will pose the timely question, where is God when they bear witness to unjust sorrow? So when children go hungry and are starving, when natural disaster strikes, and when unarmed citizens are shot, we want to know where presumably all-powerful God is in times of dire need. William Lane Craig often recites the maxim that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, the logical argument being made here is that just because there is a lack of tangible proof that God is present in times of suffering, this does not equal positive evidence that he is not there. At a crime scene, for example, just because a detective can't find evidence pointing to a suspect, this does not mean that the suspect is not, in fact, the culprit. Silence does not equal absence, and although we may feel alone in times of suffering, this personal feeling does not transcend the supernatural and make impossible a divine presence. The simple fact is that at the most basic human level, it is difficult to hold on to the idea that God and suffering are compatible. Many people tend to project that God is the ultimate safety net and should ideally deliver us unconditionally from misfortune, whether it be temporary, like cancer, or eternal, like hell. The brutal fact is that God is not made in our image, but we are made in his image. In Psalm 19.1, for example, the writer doesn't marvel at our creation, but at the heavens that declare God's glory. Human beings are made to glorify God. If the elect are therefore chosen to be glorified and glorify God in heaven for eternity, is it reasonable or unreasonable to assume that God's ultimate purpose in an individual's earthly life is their happiness and therefore to minimize suffering? Or perhaps, does God have something bigger in mind, like eternity, where all things will ultimately come together 
to fulfill his purposes. Logically speaking, it is not impossible for suffering and an all-powerful and all-loving God to coexist. As discussed, an all-powerful God chose to make a world in which people have free will, and in the exercise of their free will, people cause the suffering of others. On the other hand, neither must it necessarily be true that an all-loving God has a preference for a world that lacks suffering. When my wife was in labor, I, her OBGYN, and her nurse, all people who had a vested interest in my wife's well-being, we all had a preference for her to endure suffering in order to reach the end result of a baby. Parents all over the world allow pediatricians to give their children vaccines with the threat of high fevers, crankiness, decreased feeding, and virus-like symptoms in order to serve a greater good. In all of these examples, everyone has good reasons to allow for suffering, and we may use our natural experiences to serve as a small glimpse into the mind of the divine. After all, God himself suffered on the cross. The point is that an all-loving God could certainly have reasons that transcend our understanding that bring all things together for good. Life informs us that pain is sometimes beneficial and keeps us away from worse danger. This is why a child quickly pulls their hand away from the scorching heat of a flame, or why pain in the right lower side of a young man's belly alerts him to the fact that he may have appendicitis and he needs to go see a doctor immediately. As Joseph famously said to his brothers years after they sold him into slavery, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. That, of course, was from Genesis 50.20. In due course, in some instances, God allowing some suffering actually enables a greater good to come forth, which overcomes suffering and defeats evil. The cross is the perfect testimony to this fact. This reasoning still holds true, even if from our perspective, suffering appears to be for no reason. If a butterfly flapping its wings in Central Park can cause a monsoon in India, likely the city dweller would not be able to see the relevance of a butterfly in the grand scheme of things because the observer's frame of reference is limited both in space and in time. Now imagine what happens when we take an incident of suffering and try to clarify its meaning in the context of all of human history. This recognition is further emphasized by the fact that God is eternal and his purposes are fulfilled in eternity. People may contemplate God in the context of temporary circumstances, but the promise of scripture of eternal life cannot be stuffed into our fleeting reality. So, when we endure suffering in the present time, it is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, as it says in Romans 8.18. Or momentary afflictions which are but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Please take note that I am not minimizing anyone's current afflictions, nor was the author of these verses the Apostle Paul. After all, he was the one who suffered and had a messenger of Satan tormenting him with a thorn in his side. The point is that forever is forever, and when we compare a small blip on the radar of time to the entire radar of time, 
the weight that afflicts us now is no match for an eternal weight of glory. Furthermore, the biblical view of suffering is one of future redemption. Not only will every bad thing that happened be undone and mended, but on top of that, we will receive a timeless and infinite depth of joy that is incomprehensible. This will turn all present agonies into a distant memory that pales in comparison. A skeptical critique still remains, a sentiment expressed by the title character in the 1958 play by Archibald McLeish. The character's name was J.B., and he said, If God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. What this statement is basically saying is that with all the suffering in the world, if God is really God, then he can't possibly be good. On the other hand, if God is in fact a good guy, with so much suffering in the world, he can't possibly have enough control to be labeled a deity. We have to pay special attention to the subliminal assumption that supports J.B.'s statement, and by extension, the modern revolt against God. This assumption says that because I can't see a reason for suffering, then a good reason cannot exist. This is simply not true, and to be perfectly honest, the only way an individual person can say that something is pointless is if they possess omniscience that spans past, present, and future. The philosopher Alvin Platinga makes this case in Warranted Christian Belief when he describes the analogy of a noceum, a very small insect that cannot be seen with the naked eye. Basically, he writes, if you look inside a tent and search for a bear and don't see one, then it is perfectly reasonable to conclude that a bear is not in your tent. If, however, you look inside your tent and don't see a noceum, it is not reasonable to conclude that the insect is not in your tent because, after all, you can't see a noceum. The point here is that just because something isn't readily accessible to our understanding, like a reason for suffering, then this does not mean that one does not exist. There is a huge difference between a human being knowing or understanding why something bad happens versus God having an ultimate purpose for it. Truly, it is perfectly compatible to have a transcendent God that a person can wave their fists against and at the same time have a God that has legitimate reasons to permissively allow bad things to happen. Hence, suffering certainly is not sufficient evidence against the Lord. In fact, suffering actually points us to God. How can I say this? We'll take, for example, the horrors of injustice and all the suffering that it causes. Everyone can identify what injustice is, but where do our formulations of justice and injustice come from? What are we comparing the world to when we call it, or something that happens within it, unjust? C.S. Lewis contemplated these questions when making an argument against God for making a world so cruel. In the end, he came to the conclusion that recognizing injustice depends on knowing what justice is, and that idea must come from a transcendent standard by which everything is judged. If not, what you are left with is no standard at all, and the argument against injustice collapses. In the end, people may reject the notion of God that rules over an unpleasant reality, but this assertion is critical without any substantive content. That is, scrutinizing why suffering exists pales in comparison to the more meaningful response 
to how to deal with suffering. So while suffering may be one of the greatest objections to God, what we will learn is that our greatest problem finds its greatest solution in God. What the Christian faith does not do is attempt to scientifically explain why suffering happens in each unique experience. Rather, it provides a deep well of resources for those who endure pain and suffering and equips believers with hope and courage so that they may become mature and grow in their faith and not become burdened with angst in order to respond with bitterness and hostility. If the cross shows us anything, it is that Jesus tackled his pain head on and never shunned away from this reality. Further, in his death, Jesus suffered and identifies with those who feel abandoned, forsaken by God. God loves his son, Jesus, who endured the cross. Hence, God is not detached and far away from our human experiences of pain. As Timothy Keller writes, God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Now that we know God takes human suffering so seriously, the question remains, how does he equip us to deal with suffering? And that will be the topic of part two. So join me in one week where I will discuss common worldly strategies for suffering that won't help you. I will discuss well-established biblical principles for suffering that will help you. And I'll share my own personal story about the loss of the child and how that helped me in my walk, in my relationship with God, and how that shed light on why God allows suffering in this world. See everyone next week. Until next time, take care and God bless. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadoffel.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.